Welcome to Laugh Your Cry Out, the podcast that features unfiltered conversations about our collective mental health and where we make it easy to talk about the hard stuff. Nothing is off limits. After listening, you'll walk away smiling about the plight of being human and maybe even learn a bit about yourself. I'm your host, Joey Dumont. Let's dive into today's episode. Today on Laugh Your Cry Out, I have Dr. Adam Dorsey as my guest. Adam, as he prefers to be called, is a licensed psychologist and certified executive coach working in private practice in San Jose, California. He specializes in assisting high-achieving adults. Adam has also recorded a couple of TED Talks on the topic of masculinity, both of which I found entertaining and educational. During our time together today, we talk about just that. What does it mean to be a man today? And whether or not the role of masculinity is changing and why it needs to change. I hope you enjoy the show. As you know, I wrote a book called Joey Somebody, The Life and Times of Recovering Douchebag. And in that book, I talk about my decades-long struggle with insecurity. And it started out because one of my best friends was killed in a car accident in 2017. Mm. And his wife asked me if I would do the eulogy. And I said, yeah. And so I flew back to Minnesota. And Jay, my buddy who died, <clears throat> lived in the house next door to us. And so I was writing the eulogy in my mom's house. And my little boys were six and four at the time. And because of that, uh, I was thinking about Jay's kids. His kids were 19 and 21, and they got to witness how great of a dad he was. He was a very sweet man and kind, never mm. said a bad word about anybody. He was a molecular biologist from the Mayo Clinic, highly intelligent, cerebral, and wonderful, great husband on the soccer team at the church, and you know, just one of those dudes. And it was just a random, horrible car accident. And I thought, wow, you know, if something happens to me, my little dudes aren't going to know who I am. Right. They're going to hear from my buddies, oh, your dad was a baller. He was super funny. He had a good at, you know, good job in the ad business. And he loved your mommy and he coached your teams and all of that. But they wouldn't really know what happened in my life and why my little brother's no longer with us and why my, old, my older brother's a mess. And so the book originally started out as almost like an Anthony Bourdain kind of voice where I was going to go off on the ad biz and talk about just me being a douchebag. <clears throat> and that's kind of where the title came from. And then as I started to write, the douchebaggery kind of fell away as a place of importance. And the insecurity behind it was much more palpable and, as I found out, much more readable for anyone who wants to pick up the book. And so what took place is I began to posit myself. And as a psychotherapist, you understand this, is that I, I wanted to share the biggest painful moments of my life. And my brother, as a writer, train writer, said to me, just put a camera on the moment. So get yourself where you need to be in the story in which you want to tell and then just put a camera on it and write. Don't tell me anything, show me. And so I started showing people through story how insecure I was. And the first four chapters are about my dad, who was a sociopath, and how he affected my little family. And then from like chapters five on, it's kind of me making fun of me. <laughs> for much to our early talk before we started recording, I liked fancy watches and German cars and custom-made suits and, and those kind of things. And I talk about those stories in retrospect with humor because it was as pathetic <laughs> as you could possibly imagine. And so the whole book for me was to help men, not only younger men, but even men my age, to understand that, hey, it's okay to be scared. It's okay to be vulnerable. It's okay to admit these things specifically to your buddies, your wife, your friends, 
your family because it's a sign of strength. And, and you talk about this in your TED Talk, which is how I found you, actually. So I, in doing my homework, I started looking at people that were talking about this subject. And there's a couple books that I don't know if you've read, but Boys and Sex was a great book by Peggy Orenstein. She just came out with it. Liz Plank wrote a book called For the Love of Men, which was her very professorial understanding of the Me Too movement. And she wanted to understand why men were such douchebags, my word. And then The Mask of Masculinity was another book I just read by Lewis Howes. And he was a former NCAA athlete, played on the Olympic handball team, and then wrote a book called The School of Greatness and was a bestseller. And then he wrote this last one in 2017 and explores the same things. He calls them masks, masks of academia, masks of athleticism, masks of strength, all these different pieces and parts. I refer to them as personas. But you, as a doctor, study this. And so, you know, I was intrigued. Number one, I thought your TED Talk was great. Thanks. Because you did the homework, obviously, as a academic, but you made it very easy in the, in the like, understandability side of things. So I think that was great. And I want to talk a little bit about that. How did you, as a trained doctor in this space, you're a psychologist, correct? Correct. And to differentiate for the listeners between a psychologist and a psychiatrist, I do not give out medication. I do talk therapy. Medication is the lane of the MD, the psychiatrist. Correct. And that's actually why I chose a psychologist when I went to therapy because I, when I went to one originally, he was like, hey, you can take these meds. And I was like, dude, we've known each other for 40 minutes. I don't know if I should be on meds yet. And then I went and talked to a psychologist. (laughs) And it wasn't, it wasn't actually that I, it turns out I didn't need them, but with my behavior, I don't really doubt the dude. <laughs> right. He was like, you're a mess. And I was like, I know, that's why I'm here. But <laughs> it, was, it was one of those pieces where <clears throat> when I watched what you talked about as a train, and you're my first psychologist to actually talk about this on my show. And sure. that's why I'm excited about that because I, I do want to get an expert's opinion on where we come. Your actual show was, <sighs> I don't know the exact name of it was, well, men and emotions, but I can't remember the exact title. I called it uh, emotions, colon, the data men miss. That's what it because is. Because oftentimes, okay. if we're out of touch with our emotions, we can't really leverage the strength of the data from those emotions. And they are there for a reason, for our survival, for our even thriving in life. We, If we don't pay attention to those emotions, we end up 20 years into a marriage saying, you know... <laughs> Before I got down on any, I knew I shouldn't do this. I just didn't listen. Or any other big decision that we make. And those, the data from these emotions, it's huge. And I specialize specifically in working with high-functioning, high-achieving men who are really, really smart, who oftentimes are just beginning a new relationship with their emotions. And they find themselves way smarter, way happier, way more in the driver's seat of their lives. but. To your, you know, to your point, uh, you know, this, uh, or to your query, I mean, yeah, this is a this is a really big deal. This is a really big missed opportunity, and men have unwittingly signed on to be distant from their emotions in order to satisfy a particular mask of masculinity. To borrow from that great book's title, and I, mm-hmm. I, I did read the book uh, after okay. 
uh, of the books that you mentioned, that's the only one I've actually read. Uh, but I've read, of course, as you might imagine, several books on <laughs> masculinity. <laughs> yeah, that's been a really big part of who I am and what I do. Um, one of my favorites is by Michael Addis. Uh, it's really quite scholarly. He's from is a university. He's a Clark University professor uh, who wrote a book called Invisible Men and how men are often uh, hmm. their emotional lives are so invisible to themselves and, of course, invisible to others. But um, you know, I got a comment on something, man. <laughs> yeah. And uh, I just love that you wrote this book. And uh, and I'm certainly heartbroken to hear that something as awful as the death of your best friend uh, transpired. And yet within it, it seems like what you were called to do was pay attention to something that could be a huge existential miss on your part. And that would be to not let your children really know who you were at a deeper level. It seems almost like the book in many ways, although it's certainly, you know, uh, a user manual for many men, uh, it's really, uh, it's, it's a love letter to your children as well as a user's manual for them in terms of getting in touch with their masculinity and leveraging the strength there. Yeah, thanks. I mean, I actually did write it for my boys and that was cool. the idea behind it because I wanted them to know that even their heroes are vulnerable and that was my dedication to them in the book. And part of the reason that I started this podcast, as we joked about earlier, <laughs> you don't go from a corporate career to write a book that you've never written before and to start a podcast that very few people are going to ever watch. It right. was one of those things where I just wanted to bring people on that my little boys could look up to and I've had six guests so far and I had, well, 11 total, but these are all people that I look up to for different reasons. And I don't know you, obviously, from Adam, but when I watched Place your stuff, I watched, and I watched your, your other TED Talk on friendship, and both of which I think are very important for the discussion that I want to have at a macro level, which is, how did we get here? <laughs> Why are we still having the same conversations that we had? Like Peggy's book just came out, and she's having these wonderful conversations with young men. So end of high school, college, and they have the same exact story that I had in the locker rooms. As a jock, the way we talked about women, the way we talked about dudes that weren't athletic, and they're all the same. So like for the love of men, Liz Plank talks about incels, which is a byproduct of our culture. And if you're not a captain of industry as a male, if you're not tall, dark, and handsome, if you're not sexually prolific, if you're not a military hero, if you're not doing something that we quote, quote unquote, masculine, then what are you? And how does that affect your self-esteem? How does that affect your relationship with women? How does that affect your relationship in the corporate world? Or, and, or, you know, if you wanted to be a nurse or a teacher or, you know, someone who is in the service of others, how does, how is this all still happening? Because part of the way I look at it, when I grew up, we had heroes that my dad and maybe his parent, you know, his buddies had John Wayne, right? So you watch the old westerns and he's stoic and wonderful. And then you have James Bond, right? Which he's tall, dark, and handsome. He's sexually prolific. He's a great fighter. He kills people. He has tons of sex, right? And he drives amazing cars. And you're like, okay, you know, for me, I was like, that's it. I want to be that dude. <laughs> and then even like regular shows, Cheers back in the day had Sam Malone. Sure. You know, sure. Sam Malone was an ex ball player, sexually prolific complete pig, you know, on camera every Thursday. And I'm watching that and be like, I want to do that. That guy's awesome. And he's getting laid. And I think that's what I want to do. 
And then you look at even the movies that I thought, and this is just, you know, things that I think about Patrick Swayze and Roadhouse, the solitary figure, drove a Mercedes, could fight his way out of anything, was a Buddhist, you know, and you're like, okay, I want to be that dude. And so every single Rocky, I mean, it just, it goes on and on and on. And, and that's all the heroes we had. And then the business heroes that I had were people like Steve Jobs, who in hindsight, you know, if you're a Walter Isaacson's book about Steve Jobs, it's not flattering. He was not a good human being. He's a very smart man and a wonderful industrialist and all that. But these were my heroes. And so part of what this ramble is, <laughs> is that I, I have this theory that if your heroes are assholes, then who are you and who do you become? And in part, I started to mimic or mirror a lot of the behavior of these guys because I wanted to be successful. And to be successful, you had to be aggressive. You had to be an athlete. You had to be confident. You had to be in shape. You, you know, it was all these pieces and parts that kind of dictated my whole life up to a point. And then as Liz Plank talks about, she even says that women are somewhat complicit in this because we are attracted to guys like you and the business world is attracted to guys like you. And so like, that's my two cents, you know, as a non-educated man, <laughs> how we got here. And then the fact that really bothers me with books like Peggy's Boys and Sex, they're still in it. They're still saying the same shit I said, and they're still mimicking the same behaviors that I mimicked. Like, where, where are we going to get out of this? Or how are we getting out of this? Yeah, well, to your point, I would actually disabuse you of the idea that you're non-educated. You're highly educated and you've been educating yourself. You just don't happen to have a fancy degree after your name True. to corroborate this idea that you are, quote, educated. You are educated and that is the way out. The way out is by knowing what are the options on the menu. Hmm. Is this the only way we can do things? Is James Bond the only answer? Is Sam Malone the only answer? Or might, for example, the latest book on conscious leadership by... Uh, I believe it's John Mackey, uh, the CEO of yeah. Whole Foods, describing a different form of leader and how it may actually positively impact all stakeholders. Might that be a paradigm? And by more people, adding to the overall awareness of what a guy can look like and still rock being a guy and feel good about being a guy, but instead of sitting in the passenger seat being told, how he should be, he takes an active role in deciding what he's going to sign on and where he's going to, uh, where he's going to fit on the spectrum of masculinity. It doesn't, it's, and I, uh, by the way, of all, all those movies, I actually love Rocky. Um, I, I, it's one of my all time favorite movies because there's so much vulnerability in this film. There's so much. That's um, true. That's a good point. I, I love that movie. And he wasn't about the extrinsic thing of winning. He was about the idea of just showing great effort and trying to be his best and s somehow make it through all, I forget if it's 12 or 15 rounds um, with Apollo Creed, somebody far his superior. And I think yeah. that's a really good existential message. Um, and I think men, women, and people who you know don't identify as you know gender binary can benefit from the philosophical and existential messages that are conveyed by that film. It's incredible. Uh, I love James Bond. My kids love James Bond. I am a father of two boys. We love it. It's so much fun. But if I were to ask my sons, is that the only way to rock masculinity? And might there be some deficits in the James Bond approach? They'd be like, oh my God, for sure. Definite yeah, deficits how old are they? there. How old are your kids uh, I've there? got 12 and 16. And, uh, okay. 
nearly 16. And uh, they're great guys. And um, they love all the stuff, you know, guys loved when I was a kid and way more because thankfully, uh, this idea of masculinity is evolving mm-hmm. to incorporate more than just what you and I might have grown up with, which was really narrow. Like if you're to be a guy, this is the, the, the basic plank you walk. And if you yeah. fall off it, man, you are going to be shamed publicly. And that was awful. Yeah. And um, it's my hope that we continue to widen this and that we uh, al- allow people to really recognize who they are in this lifetime because all of us come out individual snowflakes, so to speak. Uh, and for some of us, you know, <laughs> we're going to be into things that are traditionally masculine and some things that are traditionally feminine and some things that are, you know, kind of in between. Why limit ourselves in this lifetime to what is prescribed by some medium, uh, whether it's society or a magazine or a film, this is, this is a tragic loss of life. And uh, I see all the time men coming in and challenging this paradigm that they've been handed and saying, you know what? No, I'm going to do it differently. I'm going to do it differently from the way my father did it. I'm going to do it differently from the way my friends have told me I should do it. And even as you said, sometimes wives are complicit. Women can be complicit in this idea that a man must stay high on his horse. Uh, Brene Brown, I'm going to very poorly articulate one of the things that she describes. And that was uh, a man came up to her after one of her presentations on vulnerability and courage. And he said, if I fall off my horse, my wife and my daughter will not support that. They need me up there. Wow. And so we really need, this has to be uh, an awareness from all genders that uh, to shackle a person based on certain demographic information is tragic. It's, a, it's literally a loss of life. And existentially speaking, the eulogy, to go to your point, will be very limited because we've got this one lifetime. That's all we know for sure regardless of one's ideological perspective and to limit that lifetime um, because of something that we're told not to be. That's tragic. I agree. And you started out your TED talk with some vulnerability, which I thought was cool. You (laughs) shared your discussion with your boy, Aaron. Mm, That was was fun. Right. And you guys are buddies. And at the time, well, you're an undergrad. You're both like, we're, gonna, we're both going to be psychologists. We're going to help the world. It's going to be great, right? And then at some point, you graduated. He continued his education. You didn't. You shared that you had a panic attack, which uh-huh, I talked right. about. My first one is chapter two in my book. Yeah, and they suck, don't they? <laughs> they're terrible. The worst. They're terrible. And you shared that, which, you know, that... For me, that was another is I was like, okay, check. I want to talk to this dude. So he's, you're talking about a vulnerable discussion with your boy, Aaron. And you said, I, the panic attack was, why don't you, what, as opposed to me reciting it, why don't you talk to me? Yeah, about I'm happy that? to share about that. Yeah. So um, I had undiagnosed learning disabilities. Uh, Aaron did not. He was very neurotypical. I had ADHD of the inattentive type, which meant I would space out, look out the window. Didn't know that until I was 27 uh, when I first received uh, medication for it. And later, it, uh, it just engaged in my own treatment processes to overcome 
that. I also had dyslexia. Um, wow. So it would take me about, no joke, about four times as long as my peers to read. I, I sat through three speed reading courses trying to overcome it and watching the people around me just rocking their speed reading abilities and me just floundering in front of them, uh, not, even, not even moving the needle anywhere northbound. Uh, but somewhere in my late 20s, I, I dropped out of my master's degree program Decided in my 30s to go back just to finish the master's degree. Got married to a psychologist. And every day, I would look at my wife at the end of work when we were having our dinner. And she was describing like what she was doing. And it was exactly what I was supposed to have been doing. Right. And at this point, I now had the neurological capacity to handle it. But I had a wife, a house, a son... And it seemed like the wrong time. So I had this stupid mantra and it was just, you know, I've made my bed. I'm going to sleep in it. You know, it's, it's my fault and right. blah, 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 blah. And so a year into being a father, I wake up in the middle of the night. My heart is beating out of my chest and I'm thinking to myself, gosh, I'm, I feel in some ways with regard to the relationship I share with my career, like an indentured servant in a way. What just, were you doing, by the way? I, it was point, a perfectly fine job. It just wasn't it's just not what you wanted. Uh, to do. I, I was right. being micromanaged as a sales rep, and okay. um, and it was uh, it was something I was good at, but it was something I would never be great at. But I intuitively knew that I would be really good uh, with, as a psychologist. Like this was this was right in in the heart of my skill set. And it was really funny. Uh, not long before the panic attack, I'd had lunch with. Uh, a very big player uh, in Silicon Valley. And I really wanted him to tell me that I could find my path in the corporate world. And he said, Adam, you'll be fine. You'll do great. But you're never going to be amazing because you don't love it. You were meant to be a psychologist. I was just like, dude, this is the worst time for you to be sharing this information with me because I'm already in too deep. I can't, right. I can't just like pivot now and right. quit what I've been doing. And my wife kept on saying, honey, I'd rather have a happy husband than a rich one. Just do it. And, you know, she'd been like, oh, that's cool. Whacking away at the coconuts, whacking away. And then I'm um, with my buddy, Aaron, who in college, you know, as you know, because of the, the talk, he and I used to fantasize about like, what would it be like if we were sweet mates? We had our, you know, our office in downtown San Francisco in an art deco building with a billiards table in the waiting room and a sushi <laughs> chef, like greeting people. Like, wouldn't that be insane? That'd be amazing and awesome. And of course, we, you know, I, I, I mentioned in the talk that this would not be a great idea for confidentiality purposes to have a sushi chef in the waiting room. But, um, but, uh, but we, this was, this was, this was our big goal and he became one in Honolulu. So there we are in a sushi bar in Honolulu. And I'm basically crying into my sake, just like, dude, I should have done this. And he said, you still can. I said, I don't even want to talk about this. It's way too late. Don't even try to sell me something. And he didn't relent. He was like a pit bull. He was just like, you can still do it. Here's how you can still do it. And, and finally, his, his knockout blow to me was, your wife will have your back on this. And I was like, oh my God, he's right. My wife totally will have my back on this. 
And I was like, all right. And I came back and I said, honey, uh, I'm going back for my doctorate. And she's like, thank God. You know, like finally we're going to put this to rest. (laughs) And, um, you know, we took out a home equity line of credit. I was making 10 bucks an hour uh, with no benefits as a postdoc after I, uh, I mean, before I did that, I I basically was studying nights and weekends. I found a, you know, program that would allow me to continue my job. But afterwards, I had to get the 3,000 hours and jump through a bunch of fiery hoops in order to get licensed as a psychologist. And part of that was, making a whopping 10 bucks an hour with no benefits and having a mortgage. But we took out a home equity line of credit. We figured out how to make it work. And it was a big bet on a future. And it was a great bet to make because I'm so happy in what I'm doing. And I I mean, Monday morning comes around, I'm stoked to go to work. Um, I don't know if you've ever experienced this, but like at the end of a vacation, I used to be when I was in the corporate world, so bummed because not only is the vacation over, but I'm going back to a job I don't love. And now at the end of a vacation, I'm, I'm bummed that the vacation's over, but I'm stoked to be going back to work because I love what I do. It's yeah. amazing. And given that about a third of our waking hours are around work, at least, uh, what a huge portion of the pie chart to be yeah. occupying with something you don't like. And what a horrible eulogy that would become. So I kind of refer to, you know, claiming your life as an insurance policy that you live while you're alive. And uh, that is really what I'm going for here. That's basically the purpose of my podcast to help people live while they're alive. And that's the purpose of everything I do is to help people live during this brief dash between our birth date and our death date. Like, let's let's live. Well, that's cool because you actually did get down from the horse. And your wife tells you down from the horse. horse. How do you know about getting down from the horse? That's one of my favorite stories. Uh, Well, you just referred to as one of your buddies, a guy from Brene Brown, who said, "I could, I can't." Oh, because there's another. There's a whole other story where, like, Michael Mead, (laughs) one of the great, you know, teachers on what masculinity really means. He has this book called The Water of Life, where he describes the king and his three sons. The king conveys to his three sons, "I'm dying," and the three sons are tasked to go find the water of life. The first two sons are riding on a horse and there's a dwarf at the side of the road. The dwarf says, where are you going? To each of the older brothers and each of the older brothers like, hey, screw you, little dwarf. I'm not listening to you. And they both ride off basically the cliff. The third son, the youngest, gets off his horse to your point and says to the dwarf, I have absolutely no idea. And the dwarf says, it's really good you got off the horse. Because if you didn't get off the horse, you would have ridden off the cliff. And I love that. Uh, and of course, the younger brother is the savior. I yeah. probably listened to Michael Mead's The Water of Life. Check that and I, I'm not joking, 36 times. Uh, I, I interviewed him and it was just, he's, he's just the coolest guy. Uh, one of the true, true, you know, Jedi's walking the planet. Uh, just wisdom, just oozing out of every pore of his existence. He's, he's going to leave a huge mark. He already has. He, he's been one of the biggest influencers in my life. But it was funny when you said get off the horse because I, you know. Well, I mean, you did. <clears throat> and you <laughs> with your wife and she helped you get down from the horse. Right. And, and probably fed the horse. I mean, I think the neat thing there is there's parallels there between what I'm doing. I left a corporate career to write the book. And I said to my wife, I'm going to take a year off and write this book. And my older brother who helped me write the book said, well, not a good one. That was the first thing he said. And I was like, what do you mean? I can't write a good book in a year? And he's like, no, you can't. <laughs> and wow. I said, oh, okay. Well, because I have never written a book. Let's just 
put that out there. Okay. And my brother has a master's degree in writing composition. He's a lawyer who teaches legal reasoning and writing. So this is a man who, and he goes to the Iowa clinics to write during the summer. I mean, this is a dude that this is a guy who's really, really sunk a lot of got it. Yeah. So he was like, you ain't writing a good book. And so I did, I wrote by myself for that year. And then I handed it to Paul, my older brother. And I said, Hey, this is it. Can you help me with it? And he goes, yeah, you need a lot of help, but I can help you. It's you have some good stuff here. Like this is good, you know? And, and then I said, shared that with my wife and I said, I need more time. (laughs) She's like, how much more? I said, I don't know, but it's, it's, it's a long way from being good. And I want it to be good. And she said the same thing your wife said to me, like, babe, when you love something, you do it well. And I had a really good career in the ad biz. Uh, I worked at ad agencies for years, for decades, and it was a blast. And I loved it. And to your other point, I loved when I got back from vacation, I was excited to go to work. Oh, isn't it the best? Something changed when I had little kids Mm. and I wanted to be with them. I had an absent father. And so I just, my job historically was on a plane, a hundred thousand plus miles a year working 60 plus hours a week, every week, and lots of stress. And again, fun. Advertising is a wonderful career, but it was just not conducive for where I wanted to be, let's just say, as a daddy. And so when I shared that with her, she said the same thing. She said, okay, so if we don't want to revisit your father and your depression, forthcoming depression, because you missed out on your kid's childhood, because you were working 70 hours a week, let's just figure out if you... Go do this. Go. I got it. And my wife is an executive, fortunately. So... That, by the way, was also why I meant you got down from your horse. Because for me, <laughs> and this right. is something like if I was sitting in your chair as my do- as my therapist, I'd be like, I can't allow my wife to support me. It was just like I not only did I have my voice in my head, I had my mother's Minnesota voice in my head. Oh, oh Joel, get to work. Man, work. Man, work. And my mom to this day, even after I published the book, said, "Okay, now you getting back to work." And that was not ten seconds after she got the book. I was like, "Mom, it's now the work begins on the." content side of things. I'm promoting it. I'm, I'm starting a podcast. I'm having, I'm coaching executive clients on how to make a shift in their life. And are they paying you? And I said, actually they are, but that's not, that's not what <laughs> this is about. And I took me a year to admit that I was a stay-at-home dad because I was taking my boys to and from school, doctor's appointments, sick days, docent during school trips. I coached three of their teams. And then in between that, you know, between drop them off at nine, get back here at 9.30, write for five or six hours a day, then go coach or pick them up or do whatever. And it was the best four years of my life. This last four years was just immersed in being a daddy and coaching and in the service of others, if you will, on the coaching front, because coaching little boys, soccer, baseball, and basketball was awesome. And when you walk onto the playground, and you're there with your big bag and little kids come tearing ass out of the door and hug your leg. Coach Joey, Coach Joey. That's the last name of the, it's the last chapter of the book. But it was a shift of deprogramming everything I learned as a, as a dude. That's like, incredible. What, what, does it mean to be, what does it mean to be macho? Well, letting your wife support you is not macho. And not only my wife, but my mother-in-law, who is very quiet, Chinese woman, I mean, a wonderful woman to be specific, but quiet on the fact of asking me about this because she doesn't feel like it's her duty. But right. last Christmas when we were home <laughs> before COVID, she's like, so what are you doing if you're writing every day? Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah, are you still exactly. running so an ad agency? So what are you agency? doing if you're writing every day? Like, yeah. Are you still running an ad agency? I'm like, I'm no. And I, did, I just kind of left it. You know, I didn't really get into it. But she also, because it's her, 
her belief, because her husband has been the typical patriarch and a very successful engineer and programmer at IBM for 40 years and a wonderful human being on his own. But all of these things are just like, I had to unplug because I was not that dude anymore. I was, you know, I made jokes to my buddies. I'm living off my hot, smart wife and this is what I'm doing. But there was a piece of me that was really not comfortable with it. I'm sure. And then, you know, a year later, my wife's like, okay, I think you're really comfortable with this now. Yeah. <laughs> you, so I just, I, dude, I, I mean, Joey, I just got to comment on something. First of all, congratulations. You married ridiculously well. Yes, uh, that you, you have good. a wife who had your sex and was willing to say, I see forthcoming depression. We yeah. have hard evidence that people who've survived both depression and cancer when asked afterwards which they would rather experience again if they had to experience something, they generally choose the cancer almost without variation. Depression is hard. It's it brutal. is just it, it's yeah. just crushing, soul crushing. And so she had the foresight to say, hey, I don't want this coming down the pike for you. And right. quite frankly, it would be bad for her as well. I well, mean, we, we yeah. know for sure that the moods will be contagious and it will be contagious to your sons and it will also be basically directly or indirectly making a statement to your sons that work has to be hard or that you have to sacrifice um, even when there are other options available to you. Like what about creativity? Like what about really rocking your internal and external resources to find a, a better solution and take a moment and just assess? Yeah. And that's what you've done. And if you're able to you know, take plays out of the playbook uh, for your sons to follow, they're going to and more likely have fulfilling lives and fulfilling relationships, uh, both with people and intangible relationships like with their work. Um, yep. So this is <laughs> it's a really big deal, man. No, thanks. Just like yeah. tip of the hat. <laughs> yeah, it was, it was almost forced because I left the ad business to go to be a, a chief revenue officer for a startup. And I did that a couple different times, both of which ran out of money. And they're not even part of the book. I, I reference some of these issues, but it was the perceived failure that allowed me to take the time off. And then after my, my friend was killed, I was like, wow, life can end that quick. As you read in the beginning of my book, I lost my little brother to depression. Right. So I've, I've seen enough around people leaving this planet but I'm like, yeah, it, it can happen instantly. And so what am I going to do you know, moving forward? And I think that's why I wanted to go on this mission to understand better why we do what we do as men. And you actually encapsulate a lot of that in your TED Talk. And I'm looking at here. You have the seven steps. Yeah, seven sure. Seven-step roadmap. Yep. And kind of what men need to do, right? To unplug this, to unplumb some of these issues <laughs> that are embedded in our psyche. Why don't yeah. you go through that for our listeners too? Sure. You know, I described kind of stage one as being estranged. A lot of men just have been estranged from their emotions. Uh, they can't even name them. They can name things like stressed or, you know, annoyed. But these are really cover up in emotions for maybe angry or sad, yeah. something more primary. Um, and what I help men do is try on their emotions, try to come up with a better lexicon like for describing got to name it to tame it man and mm -hmm. so that's number two is naming the naming process like based on the four food groups of emotions like you know glad mad sad scared and the entire 
family of emotions that spring out from those, what might you really be feeling in a little bit more precisely? What are you feeling right now? Uh, to, you know, they say that a, a problem well stated is a problem half solved. And I agree with that idea. Um, I believe that was Kettering, uh, a great American inventor who came up with that idea. And I totally agree with it. And I believe an ancient Chinese quote from Confucius is that all wisdom comes from the accuracy of naming things. Um, you gotta name it. Um, then comes the multiplicity. Emotions tend to be social creatures. They don't live on their own. It's like, I'm feeling a lot of things at the same time. Yeah. And it might even coexist in a pie chart. Like maybe I'm <laughs> feeling kind of 30% this and 40% that and, you know, and 20% this and 10% that. Like these are all co-occurring. Let's name them and kind of, we don't have to geek out so much and, and really uh, come up with the percentages, but it's kind of cool if you can. Uh, not necessary, but it's good to name all the co-occurring emotions. Well, that's because, funny because my brother, as I mentioned, is a big guy in words. And Hayakawa, S.I. Hayakawa says the same thing. You have to name things. And nice. writing things, you have to name things because otherwise people don't understand it. And part of what I wanted to do with my story was talk about my own episodic depression, my own anxiety. Mm. and part of how you go through this list, I was like, okay, I wasn't taught that. You mentioned somewhere in your presentation, and it might have been between one and two, as far as the stages, is that, and you just said young boys. So I wanted, I was curious about oh, age, sure. young boys in research mm. are actually more emotional than young girls. That's until right. we as a society or the constructs of our society kind of literally drum it out of them. You got it, or, man. Right? Well, how old are these it. kids in that research study you talked about? I don't recall the exact ages, but if okay. I were to just wager a guess, it's probably happened somewhere around four to six. Uh, okay, so a little four boys. other stages, by the way, of, of naming their emotions, but we don't need to get into that. Super, super <laughs> geeky, but anybody who wants to watch the TEDx talk, but the important piece that you're talking about with regard to the way boys come out organically out of the womb is that they are more emotionally expressive than their female counterparts on average this is this is shocking i mean it's like yeah no that like, that was surprising to me yeah it's like a major bomb and it's like what happened between that age and now and if we were once that way can we become that way again and can we use our higher cortical functioning like our prefrontal cortex to really leverage those emotions uh and through naming them and figuring out how to use them for the best for everybody. Like this is in those, in those just moments when somebody cuts you off on the road and you're just like, Oh my God, the middle finger's going up. And yeah. if I could beat the crap out of this guy, I would. That's what's called an amygdala hijack in the moment. Mm -hmm. Our amygdala, which are responsible for anger and fear and are there to protect us, go into hijacking, hijacking our, our higher cortical functionings, our abilities to think. You could be like the world's most chill person, but if you are, hijacked in those moments, yeah. you're not going to be chill at all. The worst of you will show up. And how quickly can we recover? How quickly can we maybe look at our, if our sons happen to be in the car with us in those moments, say, yeah, I was really, really triggered. That person may not actually be a bad person. Right. What they did, I didn't like. What they did wasn't really thoughtful. How would you like to be a better driver so that you don't do that? Uh, both as the person who cut somebody off and the person, how would you want to respond? What would be the best response? You could just ask your kid, like make it into a yeah. lesson. What would be the best response when you get cut off? And you might even talk about breathing and a whole host of 
great coping strategies so that they don't get into nasty, numbing strategies that were often taught. You know, you were talking about drumming them out of, you know, a nice little rhyme there is you can drum it out or numb it out. You know, it's like, man, you don't want the numbing out. You got to feel it if you're going to heal it. Yeah. Yeah. And so that's, it's cool because I do have little boys. And so I, I, even when they get frustrated with their computer, they'll mimic me, right? As you know, Little kids that don't necessarily listen to what you say, they model what you do. <laughs> totally. <laughs> and, <laughs> I'm sorry so for I'll laughing, Jamie. Mad- Absolutely. <laughs> I'll get mad <laughs> at my computer and I'll be like, ah, oh, God. <laughs> and I watched my seven year old do that one day and I said, oh, dude, sorry, man. That's daddy. Yeah, totally. So I do that because I have issues. <laughs> and then he laughs and I'll say, so don't do that because that's, I'm doing that wrong. I'll work on it. And so I'll say, let's just pretend, you know, your computer is a computer, right? And he's like, yeah. And I'm like, so if it's not, that's like you're, when you're getting mad like that, it's your brain taking over. And you have to remember that you're in charge of your brain. He's like, okay, daddy. And then if your brain is getting angry like that, just pause, take a second. And if you have to, just pretend to shut the computer down and then everything will be fine. And he's like, okay. And so I've been telling him this for, I don't know, two or three years now. And when I get mad now, They'll say, Daddy, who's in charge of your brain? Oh, so nice. <laughs> I'll be like, so you're Joey, right, dude. Sorry. You are you are creating a <laughs> you're creating a culture where you're able to have these high-level conversations. You know, I may be an executive coach working with some rock stars out there uh, who pay me to access my brain, and I may be a psychologist who knows a lot about emotions, but I'm a human being first. And my sons will show me <laughs> through yeah. what, uh, you know, like they will show me my shadow by what they do and what they've learned from my yeah. shadow. And one of my all time favorite aphorisms is it doesn't, <laughs> I mean, barring something egregious, it doesn't matter what you say or do. It matters how you talk about what you said or did. Hmm. And a lot of people will use conjunctions like, but when they're talking about what they said or did, you know, uh, daddy was really mad, but you shouldn't have done that. It's like, you know, maybe change the conjunction to and. Yeah. And right. uh, I can see why you might have responded the way you did. Yeah. It makes, it makes sense. Yeah. And this is, uh, daddy's a work in progress here, man. And this is, yeah. you know, uh, and it really helps a, a child recognize kind of what Carol Dweck out of Stanford talks about in mindset of a fixed versus a growth mindset. Daddy may be, you know, at his advanced age that he is and may have the advanced degrees that he has, but daddy is by no means a finished product and never will be. And, um, I'm, you know, I'm still working on this man and, and that I'm able to have these kinds of transparent conversations with my kids. I mean, they, they know, who their daddy is. He's not on a, I'm not on a pedestal. They've got, they, they know, no. they know that I'm, I'm imperfect. And they also, they also appreciate where I'm strong. And I got to say, this is really kind of cool. I love being married uh, to my wife. She's the world's greatest human being. We're 19 years in and I still feel like I'm in my first week with her. Um, and we're both psychologists and our kids love being the kids of psychologists. And I think the reason they love it is because we're also really 
aware of the fact that we are works in progress. Yeah. And we're not like, hey, you know what? You got to do it because we're psychologists and we're telling right. you this. Or I said we, so. I'm at a, was that, or I said so. We're coming out of them yeah. as, as human beings, you know, yeah. and who happen to have some knowledge and may, may be able to rock the knowledge a lot of the time. And sometimes, you know, we miss the mark, but it's how we have the kind of the post-game analysis after we've missed the mark um, with, you know, a degree of, of humility and, yes. and honesty. So, uh, and that's one of the things that my, uh, my hope was with my TEDx talk around men and emotions was like, you know, leveraging off the idea that there is no such thing as courage without vulnerability. Gotta be vulnerable uh, yep. to, uh, to really have a real authentic conversation with someone. And my hope is that people will still enjoy their conversations about technology, sports, and maybe politics, but that they'll also be able to talk about real stuff. Like what's going on in my life? What am I struggling with? What am I, where am I experiencing joy? Like real joy without mm-hmm. fear of sharing that as well. Like all of that emotional right. stuff. Like wouldn't it be cool to be able to talk about that over coffee and beers? Um, or whatever, uh, common, uh, thing that is being shared. Uh, <laughs> I always laugh when I say coffee, uh, or beers because in, uh, Goodwill Hunting, Matt Damon, when asked out for coffee by Minnie Driver's character, he said, or oh, we could just sit around and eat caramels. And she just kind of looks at him and says, caramels. And he says, yeah, it doesn't matter. It's arbitrary. What we, what we do or eat just matters that we hang. <laughs> yes. Well, I think that what you're talking to on that with, you're working specifically with high-functioning, heavy quotes, successful males, because we kind of equate success in our culture as someone who has a really good job and a big paycheck, right? You got it. Do they, are they good daddies? Are they good husbands? Are they good community members? Are they happy with themselves? You also share a story about a really successful VC who kind of fit the archetype <laughs> yes. of some of the problems in that he had no friends, friends, that he could relate to and talk to in time of need. He didn't, but to your boy, Aaron, who was the guy who launched your career. I mean, he was just a catalyst, but he did it, right? He helped you. He was like, dude, you can do this. You can still do this. Absolutely. Right. Yeah. He was the dwarf at the side of the road, so to speak. Yeah. (laughs) Like get off your horse. Let's do this. That's your moment of vulnerability that allowed you to, to move. And the same thing that stands true with most of the men you're talking to, it's still an issue, right? Men still don't have friends that they want, if they're scared or something happened in their life, they don't, I mean, maybe they have one or two, but they don't have like 10 dudes that they can call and say, Hey man, I'm really scared. Right. Exactly. (laughs) That's not happen very often. That's not the way guys traditionally talk. Although more and more guys are beginning to find that they're able to do that without feeling the internal or external shame, which is humongous. But the idea of, are they good fathers? You know, I see it all on a spectrum. We're all works in progress. And I would ask, do they have that growth mindset? Are they willing to question and ask themselves, how can I do this better? And um, that's, 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 the big, that's the big question. Like, are you willing to do an honest SWOT analysis, a 360 of like, how are you really doing? And, um, and are you willing to become kind of engage a bit of levity in the process? Like we're, we're going to suck at anything we try to do. We may be used to being a C-level rock star and be perceived as a James Bond in our institution. Yeah. But are you willing to be the guy who's just 
almost like, you know, in Spanish 101 in the first couple of weeks trying to articulate a sentence. Are you willing to go through the stages of learning and be where you actually are? Um, because that's the cost of admission to doing anything awesome is sucking for a long time. And that's the thing I have to kind of help guys out with a lot is, are you willing to suck for a while? Are you yeah. willing to suck for a while? And then I get these calls oftentimes from the spouse of said individual, like, oh my gosh, I know you can't call me back, but I love what you're doing with my husband. He's just so much more. He's <laughs> just, he's just, yeah. he's just killing it as a dad. And I, he's the yeah. guy I fell in love with and, you know, or whatever it might be. Or they come back and say, yeah, I mean, I didn't even know I wanted this. And this is just like, like you being coach Joey. I bet yes. that when you were in the throes of crushing it as an ad executive, you know, clocking, you know, all the miles that you were on your travel. If I was to say to you, Hey man, want to like go coach some kids sports and not get paid? You'd be like, are you kidding? This is, this is, this is where it's at. And if I was to ask you now about coaching, like what delights did you find there? You probably would be able to, it would probably be a whole podcast episode. Well, yeah, I wrote a whole chapter on it and that's exactly what it's all about. It was, (sighs) it was something that was not, my brother had coached gymnastics his whole life, all the way through his academic career. This so is the writer, coached, Paul. Yes, and wow. he coached boys gymnastics. Wow! And he was he was a gymnast in high school, a varsity athlete in the gymnastics team. But he he always talked about it, and this and I never understood why he was so enamored with it. But as I started to do it, I was like, oh wow, this is really different. And it was also part of a fundamental change for me that I want to share with other guys is that it's. When you stop focusing on yourself, life opens up. There's mm. just something else there that I never experienced. And then, as I mentioned to you, the heroes, this last four years, I put away, I mean, not that I don't read business books anymore, but in, the, in my 30s, I started reading spiritual texts, the Tipitaka and the Bhagavad Gita. I even read, read, reread the Bible for my mother because she's like, why are you studying this other stuff when God's in only one book? And I'm like, I'll read God's book, okay? Um, <laughs> but I, I share that with you because I, this was after my dad embezzled all my money and I had no idea what I was going to do. You'll get to this at some point. Okay, yeah. It, it, just <clears throat> for the listeners out there, I haven't fully read Joey's book. We may yeah. do another episode <laughs> at some point where after yes. I do, but I, I, I'm in love with what I've read so far. There, your dad freaking embezzled your money. Dead. And so I didn't, as a 30 year old man, I was upside down in debt, six figures. He, I was paying my rent to him because I lived in his condo. He wasn't paying the rent. So three weeks later, I got evicted. So now I had no home, no job, six figures in debt. I owed all my friends and family money and I didn't have anything to touch as a dude. So I went to my friend Kimmy's house, who was one of my best friends, and I said, Hey, uh, and, and I said this to her, and it's also in the book because you mentioned the cancer thing. I said, hey, the jig is up. The super confident guy I pretend to be, it's over. I'm done. I'm scared shitless. And I don't know what to do. And she's like, okay, honey, come in. We sat down. She poured a glass of wine. She asked her husband, Dave, who's one of my best friends, also cooked me some chocolate chip cookies. We watched a rom-com. And I just blathered on like I pierced a levee and I just told her everything. Like, this is what happened. I'm fucked and I don't know what I'm going to do. And she's like, are you going to off yourself? And I was like, no, but I wouldn't mind dying. Oh God, you know what? I would rather have cancer than feel this level of pain. 
That's mm. what I said to her, out loud. Yeah. And there was another book I read, another memoirist who wrote about his life, and he said the same thing. And there's a lot of people that have used that, obviously, as did you. It was the episodic depression that took place after that was worse than anything else I've ever felt. It was so lonely. And I didn't feel like anybody else ever felt that badly again, or has ever felt that bad. And now I know that like, on, on a spectrum, I'm not even in the middle. So and, it was and, like... And, and, and I got to tell you straight up, you're not the only guy I've heard of one's father embezzling money. It always shocks me when I hear it, but I've heard that story from yeah. many really cool guys like you. And that just being utterly, utterly baffled and just the wound that it, it, it incurs. And, oh, yeah. And, and the hero. death wish that accompanies it at times. Just like, yeah, I don't feel like killing myself, but you know, dying would be way easier. Oh, good. Yeah. And, <laughs> um, but um, and that's not uncommon. Uh, and I'm glad to hear that you were not actively suicidal. That's a very, no, never very serious been. thing. But you, you said something really important. You said something along the lines of that you stop focusing on yourself. And a hallmark yeah. of both depression and anxiety is a self-focus. And the, you know, the willingness to deactivate the rumination and to go into the experience of another and to help another. I mean, the, the preponderance of research that supports the idea of it kind of catapulting us out of a depressive state uh, is so important. There's something else that you said that I, I just really thought was so crucial. And that was just that moment where, you know, you're drinking the wine. And by the way, for any of you in recovery, it does not need to be wine. It could be, could be a nice, <laughs> yeah. you know, could be a nice herbal tea. tea. Uh, tea yes. It doesn't matter. Again, it could be caramels to Matt Damon's point. <laughs> it doesn't matter what it is, but the willingness to just, just be with the fact that you're overwhelmed and just be with that for a while. Um, we know that trying to pretend that it's something else doesn't work. And that resisting it is futile. Trying to swim upstream when the current's carrying you a direction, you gotta just be with it, merge with it, and over time, trust that you will find your north again. Um, and that you are willing to ask for help to people yeah. you trust. I mean, that is such an important resource. Um, and that you're gonna suck for a while. And I, the piece I didn't wrap up and just I wanna tie it into a bow is yeah, we're going to suck at this for a while. Yeah. But with active reps doing the right thing over time and time and time again, uh, a new neural pathway will emerge, new habits, new ideas, new options that we didn't even see as possible, new abilities. People don't speak foreign languages because they're not willing to look stupid. I mean, we got to look stupid in order to speak a foreign language. And people ask me, like, how did you learn how to speak those languages that I speak a couple? And the only reason I've been able to do it is I was willing to look like an idiot for a long time. Um, and it was worth the cost of admission. Um, but there's still some areas and I've, I've, I've come out around this and, and like dance, I've not been willing to look like an idiot. And that's like, <laughs> that's like my growing edge. Like I'm hoping over the next decade that I will have the courage to address my unwillingness to uh, embody my, you know, my birthright as a dancer <laughs> in right. this lifetime. Like I got I it's just so uncomfortable for me, man. Well, you're not the only white dude who has that. <laughs> There's no question there. I, I think that 
I want to talk about that story briefly because it was at the time I was still looking at, at the wrong heroes. And as I wrote this book, I would have to sit down and posit myself into a really insecure situation and write. And when you do that, it brings up a lot, as you know. Mm -hmm. And I sat on a couch for eight years with a psychologist, Dr. J, I call her, but she, she didn't save my life in the sense that I was suicidal. She saved my life in the sense that I'm actually living. Exactly. Existing, right? It's totally, you need to understand why you're distracting yourself. You need to understand that you have a lot of pain that you haven't dealt with. And so you're just doing a lot of stupid shit and you need to stop doing it. And you know, you deserve better kind of thing. And even quitting booze, I quit drinking booze when I had my kids. They were three and one at the time. And for the same reason, I just didn't deserve to feel that way anymore. I didn't deserve the hangover. I didn't deserve the, the shaming spiral of the moment you'd embarrass somebody at the party or you know whatever it was that you did wrong. And I was like, I just can't do this anymore. And that was a big moment where I was like, okay. And as I sat down and started to write this, I, I'd never been on a podcast. I'd never listened to a podcast. I'd never written a book. So I was like, this is crazy. Like, <laughs> what am I doing? And, and the, the people that I started following, I started following Pete Holmes. I don't know if you've listened to him, but, and it turns out they're all comedians, by the way. And Mark Marone and Dax Shepard, Dax Shepard, Russell Brand. It. Mm-hmm. And yeah, there's Dax Shepard's a recovering addict. Exactly. And he talks about it all the time. And I, I've abused drugs and alcohol, but I never really called myself an addict because. I don't know really know why. I just haven't. And I've never gone to, you know, the 12-step programs. I've been in and out of those with my brother, so I understand how wonderful they are and how useful they are. But I was fortunate enough to be like on a spectrum. If it's ever one to ten spectrum, I was maybe a three. So I could kind of like just like, oh wait. <laughs> I had therapy. I realized I'm a decent human being. So the self-loathing is no longer as palpable. And so because of that, I can stop fucking myself up. Right. That was just kind of like where that was. And Dax Shepard talks about that where he had a moment where he was going out Friday night and he got his typical pills. And so he went and got his pills from his drug dealer. And then he went and bought a bunch of booze. And he's like, you know what? I want to go home and do this. He didn't even want to be at a party. He just wanted to like completely shut off. Yeah. And and not feel at home at all. And he woke up at night and he's like, Oh wow. You know, I don't know what happened. And, he went out in his kitchen and there everything was gone. All the pills were gone. All the booze was gone. <laughs> and it was Sunday night. So he'd been out for two days or Monday night even. It was like two or three wow. days. And he was just completely blotto. Lost weekend. Should have been dead. Yeah. You know, statistically. And freaked out and called his mom and said, Mom, I'm a mess. You know, I, I need help. And, and he said that a year later, he, for another year, he continued to, you know, hurt himself. And, and he talks about this. And part of which is, he talked about his dad splitting and how his dad left when he was a kid and that it, it bothered him and it bothered him his whole life until he became a dad. And this is a story that really hit me hard because my dad split, came back into my life later, but I always felt, oh, I, I missed, I wanted to have a dad. I wanted to have a dad around to take me to sports and I wanted to have a dad to play catch with in the yard and I wanted to have a dad to look up to and feel safe and all that. And uh, Doc said, after he became a dad, he said, you know, after I became a daddy, I, I felt sorry for my dad that he missed out on this. And I was like, mm. holy shit. Dude, so he went to a place brilliant. of compassion rather than for a place yeah, of... Yeah, and it helped me because you know. I actually forgave my dad before he died. And I told him, I said, dad, I love you. And I forgive you for everything. And he said, for what? And he didn't understand all the abuse. He didn't genuinely get it. 
And so that was one of those things where I listened to Dax for the same reason I read spiritual books. I listened to Pete Holmes for the same reason that I lit spiritual books. These guys all come out. They're all vulnerable. Exactly. They're all hilarious, by the way. Yes, which is Art just Marone lovely. Is as dark as almost anybody. Mark Maron? Yes. Oh, he's Maron. Great. Yes, I call him Maron. Mark Maron's <laughs> great. And Russell Brand, who's just, his mind is on fire. Constantly. Amazing. Yeah. And so all of these guys, to me, are the new heroes. These are the guys that I will show to my kids, not because they're recovering addicts, but because like these are men that I look at today as heroes because of what they're doing, the impact they're having on their story. It's not just that they kept their story to themselves. They actually go out and talk about it. And because they have a platform, they're helping millions of people understand, hey, I'm not the only one who feels that way. Totally. I'm I'm not the only one who suffers from episodic depression or... I'm not the only one that's constantly leaning forward because I'm so anxious or I don't feel like I'm as good as all these other people. And they do that through the lens of humor. And totally. not that it's not, you know, these platforms aren't always fun, mm-hmm. but they're, they're so entertaining for me in that I'm learning about introspection. I'm learning about other people who have exactly the same malady that I had or experienced the same level of emotion that I had or dealt with the same macho bullshit that I was dealing with and I couldn't unplug. And that to me, you know, what do you think about that as a doctor? I mean, what do you I think that's one of the greatest gifts to society? They're taking the piss out of James Bond and basically saying, Hey, listen, you can be really, really strong and vulnerable. And here's what it looks like rather than just yeah. describing it academically. They are living it yeah. and they are providing a template for a guy to say, huh, I wonder if Dax can do it. Maybe I can do it too. And, and they're being funny about it at the same time. Let's face it. Yeah. Uh, you know, there's this great book out from two Stanford business professors, uh, called humor seriously. That just describes the science of humor, um, and how important it is in our lives and what an important vehicle it can be. I mean, John Stewart has been probably my number. He's been Dumbledore at my, you know, at, at my Academy of life. Um, in fact, I've got a, I've got a picture of him in my office. I, I, he, he will always be like one of the greatest mentors. I actually did meet him very briefly. He forgot about it. I'm sure by now, but I will (laughs) never forget about it. Um, and shaking his hand, like just like was amazing. But there are these people who through humor and integrity and kindness and vulnerability are just showing us what it can look like yeah. to be a man. Uh, and it flies in the face of the definition you and I grew up with. Yep. And I'm beyond grateful to these guys. And I intend to be one of those voices. Yeah. Well, that's what you're doing. And that's why, that's why we're talking, right? You're, that's you're, why we're talking, man. And, and the friendship thing also ties into all of that. Like mm-hmm. part of what you were talking about in your friendship talk is the importance. And you referenced the Harvard study that everyone references. <laughs> it's it's omnipresent and it should be. It's what, a 75-year yep. longitudinal it's study? It's now 82 years old. Okay, yeah. If you can believe that. Crazy. And it's overwhelming in terms of like what it's saying. You know, we need people. The idea of being the, you know, the strong loner. Yeah, that's not really a work. great idea. Yeah. 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 We need well, people. You said that there's a difference between loneliness and solitude. I'm glad I did too, because there yeah. is a huge difference. I'm sure you and I have both experienced the rejuvenation of being 
alone by choice. Oh yeah. Perhaps like, you know, sitting at home and just just relaxing into the solitude of a thing, reading a book, yeah. streaming a really awesome series, going out on a hike and, and having just the amazing effects of sunlight and nature and cardio all at the same time. Those great anti-depressing and anti-anxiety effects yeah. of that beautiful, uh, you know, that beautiful trifecta. Um, but we also need time, even introverts. I mean, Susan Cain and her great book, uh, Quiet, you know, The Secret Power of Introverts in a World That Won't Stop Talking. I mean, introverts still need to connect with people. They need maybe less connection and lower numbers in terms of the number of people with whom they connected at a particular time uh, than extroverts, but they still need people. And she herself is married to an extrovert. Uh, I, I kind of fall more on the ambivert. My wife is definitely an introvert. I've learned a lot from her about like self-restoration and the ability to recharge through solitude. Mega important in my life. Yeah. Um, and I'm just way more present and available to others when I get that time. But loneliness, by contrast, is lethal. Uh, we have hard data that shows that loneliness is bad for every measure of health imaginable and leads to early death in many people, or at least risk factors for death. I mean, one could, I suppose, be a centenarian and, uh, and lonely, but they would be kind of the, they'd be kind of the exceptions, the outliers. I mean, you know, George Burns was able to smoke his cigars until he was north of a hundred. And he's, you know, he made a joke saying that all of his doctors told him to stop smoking and they're all dead now. But, um, you know, the fact is that's, that's an outlier. I mean, that's yes. just highly unusual. So well, we need people. That study talks to the importance of friendship, long, long-term friendship, because that was the commonality between, right. didn't, wasn't this a Harvard? And I get this conflated often, but some of these people were from Harvard. It was, yeah, it was two, two groups. The, it was two groups of people. One was Harvard grads and they yes. were both men. And one yeah. was from Southeast, from South Boston, generally right. uneducated blue collar yes. workers. And it found that regardless of socioeconomic status, levels of education, you know, earning potential or earnings, that it was the quality of the relationships that predicted longevity more than any other predictor including, you know, cholesterol and a whole host of other yes, kind of typical friendship. measures. It was, it was the quality of the relationships. They didn't necessarily have to be friendship. It could okay. be, the, it could be, it could be having a good relationship with one's spouse. Um, Got but it. it was the quality of the relationship. And let's face it. I mean, an important part of, of, of a marriage is the friendship itself. Uh, you know, yeah. they say that, you know, sex is 10% of a marriage when the sex is good and that sex is 90% of the marriage when the sex is bad, sex is bad uh, yeah. or not going well. Um, but, um, yeah, and friendship is a crucial component to, uh, a good marriage. And is that, an, was that kind of a, I don't know, like the underlying or the underpinnings of the EQ versus IQ mm. component. I mean, because obviously you have a, a pretty big intellectual quotient if you're accepted and studying at Harvard College. And then I, I lived in Boston, so I had a lot of buddies from you know, some Southie buddies, and and their friendships were long term. Yeah, were, right. Right. Yeah. I mean, they they're still buddies. Totally. Like, and the buddies and they're, they're all Bruins fans, aren't they? Oh well, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and and just but they love each other. They're not Beyond, necessarily. Right. You know, they wouldn't be my, uh, 
go to as far as vulnerability. For sure not. <laughs> These for guys sure are not. Very they, they tend to high five over, you know, they can't high five over other things. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, but. But is it an EQ but, thing that is more, when you talk about just relationships in general, it's not just your wife, it's your, your colleagues at work, it's your, your mates, your buddies from high school, college, all that. It's, it's that whole amalgam of friendship that is important to your mental health and your happiness. That's kind of what the study was talking to, right? So I like that you're kind of bringing EQ into the discussion. And IQ, uh, we, we, we know, uh, I mean, just watch Sherlock uh, or watch you know, somebody who's really, really smart intellectually. They may not be interpersonally smart. Right. Um, and I would even estimate that a great many of the Southeast have incredibly high IQs. Uh, they just didn't have the same opportunities. Um, right. But they probably have also embedded in the system of closeness, um, the high fives that they give each other, um, that the, the fact that they can count on Friday nights as being the night that they sit around and watch yeah. the Celtics, the Bruins, the Sox right. play, and they're just high-fiving each other like crazy. Like that will release oxytocin and will have compounded interest, probably will, you know, if, if they're only able to talk about sports, uh, and only able to high five over sports, it limits the range of 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 movement. But um, but that's really really something, and uh, it's a big deal. Uh, Vivek Murthy, who wrote uh, a book on um, loneliness called Together, he described these man caves that are these kind of man projects where guys are creating kind of clubhouses for guys to hang out in, and. It's less important that they, you know, have these really deep discussions about their feelings and more important that they have regular hangout. It would be, I, I would say as a psychologist, extra credit if they're yeah. able to get more vulnerable. Um, but the EQ um, is, you know, greatly established by being able to read uh, emotional cues from others. And that's something that happens in contexts um, like what we're describing in, in South of Boston or amongst people who meet with some frequency. Well, because just dudes in general, I have, and I, as I mentioned, I grew up in the media world and the business world. And after I wrote the book, it's been out five weeks. <laughs> and I think that it's at least two people a day that reach out to me either through like a DM or a text or even a phone call and say, hey, let's chat. And so I'll get on the phone and like, Dumont, I had no idea, dude. And I was like, hey, no, how could you, right? It's not like something we talk about at a summit or a conference where we're getting drunk and having fun and, and talking about deals. And, and they instantly share that they're in a really weird place. I'm going through this with my wife. I'm going through a divorce. I'm going through, I got fired, you know, I'm, I don't know if I can, I'm worried about my career. I mean, just like all of these really super vulnerable things. And if there's any takeaway from this book that's really surprised me, and this this was my hope, by the way, with the book, because I wanted other people to go, okay, Joey has the optics of someone who's very confident, had a good life in the business world, is madly in love, and has two healthy kids. So everything he's got everything going on, you know. And Dax Shepard talks about that too when he was at the pinnacle of his life in movies. His screenplays were being picked up. His com comedy career was going well. He had more money than he could possibly spend, and he was still ingesting drugs, you know, like Gatorade and chocolate. He just didn't care. And, and that was a piece where, for me, even as I wrote this, the last four years were probably the most tumultuous 
on my psyche because I kept revisiting all the shit. Even the stuff that I unplumbed in therapy, it still caused me anxiety. And, and for the last five weeks, I've had none. Mm-hmm. <laughs> none. And I know I'm, I'm in flow right now, so I get that it's like temporary because everything is. But every single person that talks to me, and I had, I had two this morning as well that reached out, and I'll talk to them this afternoon, is admitting that they're scared. And because I wrote a book about being scared and insecure and pathetic <laughs> and all of these things that I made making fun of myself, they now feel like they can reach back to me and say, dude, me too. And thank God I can talk to somebody about this. Because I mean, you threw down. Yeah, you shared. Well, yeah. And I think that's kind of where, you know, if there's an answer to this, as far as how do we as a, as a gender, how do we get out of this? And I'm generous, probably not the right word. As as guys, as men. So I, yeah. I mean, I have I have not the answer, but I have an answer, and it relates to exactly what you just said. Throw down a low, just perhaps a not such a big share, but something that might be somewhat vulnerable. Guys are just aching to talk. They're scared. And kind of like, you know, Voldemort in Harry Potter, you know, he who shall not be named, it's almost like right. goes in this space of like, I'm not even going to say it. But if you throw down and just kind of do kind of a, a low stakes throw down, like, hey, yeah, I'm kind of struggling with this. Yeah. They may follow suit. They may not. But it is a good way to kind of see like, hey, can we go here? Can we not go here? Um, yeah. I'll call okay. them out too, because during COVID, when f- COVID first happened, there's a, there was a running joke. There was a good meme on Facebook that said, "Have you reached out to your extrovert friends?" And then it says, "No, I'm serious." <laughs> <'Cause> <laughs> That's like, a great meme. Because like, that's a great screwed. meme. And so I would talk to buddies when I was feeling out of it. And I think you already touched on that. When I was feeling out of it, I would reach out because I was I, I got to get out of my own head. Totally. If I, if I call someone, ask them how they're doing, then I'm not machinating on just, all my just, bullshit. Exactly. Yeah. And so I would call them and say, hey, dude, how's it going? I haven't talked to you for a while. How's it going? Like, and they're like, it's good. I'm like, is it? I love that. And they're like, no. I'm like, all right, that's why I call because I'm a mess. And so I figured if I could call up and <laughs> see if you're, you know, I could talk with, about you and your shit, <laughs> that would be great. And I think the neat thing or the irony about being in the service of others is that it's actually not. <laughs> it's almost like it's be, you're being selfish because you need to help you and be, and the best way to help you is to go help somebody else. So I think it's just Absolutely. like this circle, you know. And I think that oftentimes guys believe that they have to have an agenda in order to justify the call, rather than just kind of just say, "Hey, man, I'm calling with no agenda." Mm-hmm. You know, just kind of Stevie Wonder. I'm going. I'm just calling to say I love you, man. Hey, yeah. how's it going? <laughs> um, yeah. And speaking of I love you, man, one of the all time great movies, uh, starring Paul Rudd and the great uh, uh, Jason Segel, uh, where. Paul Rudd's character realized he just did not know how to do friendship. And Jason Siegel basically breaks it down and shows him like what a friend can look like. One of my all-time favorite movies. But back to that idea of kind of getting out of your head and just when they say, yeah, things are fine. And you're like, really? Are they? Um, I just remember this moment, you know, my cousin Dan and I were flying to my grandma's funeral. And this was some time ago. And I was in a really, really tough relationship and he said hey how's the relationship going and i was like oh it's great you know it's good yeah (laughs) and he just kind of looked at me and i was just kind of like all right bro here's what's going on and it was a united flight 
from SFO to Newark, New Jersey. And for the next six hours, (laughs) poor cousin Dan just had to hear me just like, you know, just release the abscess. Like I just cut it open. It's like, and that, and then by the time it landed and it's like, and I'm breaking up. (laughs) (laughs) So it's still good. It's good, huh, dude? It's going good. And, you know, and there's something about like the confluence of like a really cool person, my cousin Dan, and like an existential reality, my grandma's death and having some time to talk in a real way. Um, yeah. Just like, un. back then, you know, there were no cell phones on airplanes or other interrupters. No. And it was just me and my, my cousin Dan just talking about like what was really going on. And um, your invitation, your friends were like, really? Is, are things good? Because if it's not, if it is, that's great. That's great. I'm not going right. to, I'm not going to, yeah. I'm not going to try to pull out something that's not there. But right. if it's not, I want you to have the space to tell me it's not. Yes. And that would be a really cool, like, you know, if we can do a license to kill with James Bond, let's do a license to like tell what's up. You know, uh, I, I'd love to find something that rhymed with kill. I, I can't say a license to ill because the BC boys <laughs> took that a while ago. Uh, yes, but a license to, uh, you know, I don't know, shrill. Uh, we'll figure it out. <laughs> well, and that's, that's the kind of the macro theme of everything you're doing with your specific demo. Older men or thirties and up who are you know actually it. no man I'm seeing I'm seeing I'm seeing guys in the twenties who are crushing it too same issue though are they still uh, like emotionally it, uh, less so but definitely uh, like what got them there you know you may have heard the expression what got you here isn't going to get you there like I'll yeah. see you know a guy in his mid to late twenties um, who is absolutely just way ahead of schedule like so killing it. And he's like, I need to take a breath. I don't know where I'm going. Yeah. And I think I need to address this sooner than later. I'm just like, oh, good for you. Hell yeah. yeah. Way, to, <laughs> way to show up. And yeah. I wish I'd, you know, I wish I'd done what you're doing at 27. That's amazing. Yeah. And I got it. And, and I make no bones about it. I've done, I've done a lot of work on the other side of the room. I'm sitting on in my therapist chair, but I've definitely sat in the couch of many, a really good therapist. And it's so important. Like you found Dr. J. It's so important to find a good match. There are so many different, you know, modalities of psychotherapy. The match is the biggest yeah. predictor of how well it will work. Like, and just because your buddy likes this therapist and thinks the therapist is the cat's pajamas might not be yours. We all a need, a, you know, we all need a different Mr. Miyagi, a different yeah. Dr. J. Um, and if you can find him or her or they, um, it well, you will mentioned be something in a your big deal. podcast with Bonnie, Dr. Bonnie Burrell. Oh, um, yeah, sure. That was cool, by the way. I really enjoyed that conversation. I'm so glad. She's amazing. You said something, and I may have misquoted it. 10% of people would go to therapy, even if it was free. Isn't that amazing? It, is that true? That's that was so that's, that's something like, that she cited, and I, and I would trust her implicitly. Yeah. She is one of the finest therapists I've ever had the privilege of knowing. Uh, she uh, so I, I was just thinking about that idea. It's funny, Joey, that you would bring that one up, and I think that a lot of people do have a lot of trouble getting off the horse. They're worried. I mean, like, what will I find? Or kind of like in Empire Strikes Back when Yo- uh, when Luke goes into Yoda's cave and finds yeah. out like all that dark shadow material. Most yeah. of us don't want to confront that dark stuff. We're worried that we won't be able to handle it, but we will. And I would say that, yeah, uh, I, I think that's, I think she's spot on. Um, I think that 
probably 80% of the population, this is a conjecture on my part, could and would benefit from a great therapeutic alliance with a great therapist, no matter, you know, even if they're not acutely suffering, maybe they're just needing just a little yeah. better mirroring, a little more authenticity in their life, a little more self-knowledge, a little higher EQ, whatever it might be. Um, but yeah, I, I, I and I, I'm, I'm certain she's, uh, you know, she's citing good, <laughs> she's citing good reasons. No, and I actually had to go back and listen to it because I was like, I must have missed something. But yeah, totally. that shocked me in the sense that at scale, our culture doesn't have access to therapy. So that's a big problem, which we don't need to get into. But for me, because I was financially fortunate, I was able to go to a therapist who didn't take insurance, by the way, mm -hmm. because most of the ones that I interviewed did not. And she was, she's like, I'm proud of you for coming. And I was like, okay, well, I, thanks, but I'm screwed. Like, <laughs> I'm here because I'm screwed. Like, I'm going to make some big mistakes in my life if I continue to be this angry. And she helped me unwind that. And then you mentioned that in one of your studies, or you mentioned a study in your TED Talk where it allowed men to either sit quietly with their emotions right. or experience some level of shock therapy. <laughs> and they and, chose and, the shock and I, therapy. I, 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 actually, <laughs> I actually contacted uh, the professor at University of Vermont who created the study, and I wanted to make sure I was properly citing it. It was that they were un... And I said it very specifically... Uh, that they were unwilling to sit quietly with their own internal processes. It could have yes. been their thoughts or their feelings. Yeah. Uh, but those internal processes tend to be thoughts, feelings. Um, and they could choose to distract themselves with an electrical shock. And the vast majority of men <laughs> chose the shock. And, you know, to further validate this idea, I, you know, just, it just dawned on me. I, I, um, I'm trying to remember the guy's name who found the Titanic. Uh, shoot, I can't, can't recall it. But I, I was watching him give a talk and he said, you know, NASA has a budget that is, I don't remember if it was 10x, 100x of what we can do with regard to ocean exploration. I wish we could explore the ocean. And I think that as people, you know, just in terms of our evolution, we kind of think more externally yeah. than internally, like more out in space than oceanic. And I see oceanic kind of as a metaphor for being willing to dive into our unconscious processes, our quiet, dark areas that we'd rather not know because they're scary. Like, man, there might be dragons there. And yeah. let's go, let's go out in outer space. That would be, that would be cool. Um, rather than right. like, let's, let's take a moment and like, find out like who we really are. Let's dive into our shit. Yeah, oh, no, totally. Well, that makes terrifying. sense. I, I sure didn't enjoy therapy. I didn't enjoy the introspection. <laughs> I didn't yeah. enjoy writing the book. I didn't enjoy any of it, but I can say that coming out of it, and this is actually why I wanted to have you on the show and why I wanted to share what's going on with men is that I think we're making progress and obviously you're helping and doing that with your clients and, and people in your TED Talk and everyone that's watched all the things you're doing. So kudos to you for that. I, Thanks, uh, man. I and right. I just want to name, a, just there is a spectrum. There are people who say, wow, I benefited from therapy massively and it was totally painful. It was like lancing abscesses, as I kind of described earlier. Yeah. Uh, but if I hadn't lanced them, I'd be walking out with, you know, walking around with pussy cavities all over my body. <laughs> but if I, uh, but there, there's another group of people, and I see this fairly frequently, and, and it may have something to do with the fact that I'm kind of, you know, I try to bring a lot of vitality and humor into my work. I mean, not 
to minimize their suffering, uh, but but to to no, just works. find find. And they often will look at me and say, gosh, you know, I am getting better and I'm having fun in here and I'm kind of looking forward to that. Our sessions, is that weird? So there is a subset, uh, a fairly large subset of the population that finds the therapeutic process at times um, incredibly, you know, maybe excruciating and at other times just so liberating and fun and vital and powerful. So it's just, it's, it's to your point, a spectrum and, uh, there is no, uh, one experience fits everyone's adventure. No, that's a good point. I, to be clear, I, I love sitting down with Dr. Jan. Oh, sweet. It was every Wednesday at five o'clock for eight Nice. And she would not allow me to miss an appointment. She made me bring a check every single Wednesday, a check like an actual physical printed check. And when she first asked me, I was like, I don't even know if I have checks. She goes, I know you don't. You have checks and you can find them. And before, what, what it's going to make you do is be attentive to yourself, which you're not. And she assessed all this in like the first 45 minutes and said, so you need to bring a check. And if you don't, you have three weeks to make up the session. And if you don't make up the session, you still pay for it. If you do this three times in a year, I will not be your doctor. Wow. So she like, really. Wow, I love you. And, and she, because she knew me. And I was like, can I just pay uh-huh. up front for a year? She's like, no. Like, do you just throw money at everything? And I'm like, yeah. <laughs> That's how I get through shit. And so it was kind of like, it was great. But what I, I loved her and I loved how she unwound things slowly and carefully because she was trained to do so. What I didn't like was what you're talking about is diving down into 30,000 you know, 30, feet below the water. It's like, oh, there's some dark stuff in there, and there's a lot of pressure down there. It's, and yeah. I, you know, it's it's like the, it's just scary, and I don't want to necessarily be there. And, and coming out of that, in hindsight, that's kind of why I wanted to share this with other young men, and obviously women too. But it is worth the while to go and and get the the therapy, and the fact that we're still having these conversations around. You know, we, people don't talk about anxiety. We don't talk about depression. We don't talk about addiction. We don't talk about death by depression. We don't talk about any of that, which is why I wanted to. And all of that shit <laughs> is in my memoir because it's sadly not even atypical. I think that was the point. Even with the reviews thus far, they talk about, oh, I laughed, I cried, I cringed. I was rooting for you. It was those kind of things where you're like, oh, yeah, okay. So we're still not as a culture talking about these things and for as far as guys it's even more of a problem because it comes across weak right right and and that we're taught from early on one of the emotions you can get away with as a dude is anger right right so you if you're if any of any of this shit's going on down here you don't understand just move it right up to anger <laughs> totally and, <laughs> and don't then, show sadness or just real joy exactly yeah just get mad <laughs> so, or fear, God forbid, right? Well, yeah. And, and I think that's, that's kind of where, you know, therapy and, and obviously the books that we're talking about and the comedians that we're talking about. And I, I do think that our society is moving in the right direction. I just, I think it needs to be accelerated. <laughs> My man, I am, I'm really optimistic. Um, I'm so glad to have these voices in the zeitgeist who are just basically calling it out, naming it. Uh, just releasing us from shame. I'm so grateful to people like Brene Brown, uh, people like Oprah Winfrey, uh, people who are like the comedians and the others. I mean, even Conan O'Brien is, you know, showing up in a, in a big way um, right now. 
as are so many others and making us more psychologically minded uh, is the term I like. In fact, that was a key criterion. When I was considering like, who did I want to marry? I wanted to marry somebody who was really psychologically minded, somebody who actually thought the way Dr. J would. Like, There is meaning behind everything. Like bringing your checkbook, that's meaningful. Paying for the whole thing up front, yeah, we're not doing that. That, That's meaningful. And uh, the idea of you missing, that's also meaningful. And that fit for you. And yeah. uh, I wanted somebody who was really psychologically minded, who would just be able to, with whom I could have like a synergistic relationship in which I would be able to propel her forward and she'd propel me forward. And that we were constantly doing that for each other. And um, I'm so glad you found Dr. J. She sounds like a really sophisticated therapist. She's she great. sounds like she was she was your guru. She was your Sherpa who could help you walk some really rocky terrain and show you like, Hey, let's go over there. And you're like, I don't want to go over there. Yeah. I'm going over there. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, no, that's it. It it, actually, we can wrap this up in the sense that you married a strong woman. I married a strong woman. I surround myself with strong women. And I think that they as a group can help us untether from a lot of the stuff that we thought was necessary to be a dude, you know? Definitely. I, w- I would even, I'd add several other modifiers to strong, but she is one of, the, she is absolutely unequivocally one of the strongest human beings I've ever known. Uh, pound for pound, I always let her know, you know, she, she would be able to totally, totally overpower me physically if I didn't weigh more than she. Um, but she's, she's physically and emotionally and psychologically strong, but she's also supremely compassionate. And I'm so glad that compassion is entering the zeitgeist as a thing um, because that is what gets us out of shame. Like to mm-hmm. borrow from Brene Brown, if we could put shame into a Petri dish, sprinkle some compassion or empathy on it, we'd get rid of the shame. And shame causes us to contract and causes us to not show who we are or let ourselves be known to ourselves for who we are. And the more compassion we're able to give to ourselves and give to others, Oh man, wouldn't that be a great world to live in? And uh, that's just, it, it, it's interesting to note that on all fronts, everyone gets stronger in the face of compassion. Thanks for tuning in, everyone. If you dig what we're doing over here, please subscribe. And while you're at it, please download an episode or two and leave a review. I'd love to hear your thoughts. Until next time, big hugs. <laughs>